Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the fraud behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by my absolute best friends. I have Natasha here. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing great. It is pumpkin season, so I'm thriving. How many PSLs have you had in the last, say, 36 hours? Zero, but Trader Joe's has a really good pumpkin oat beverage. I recommend <laughs> Man, you know, whenever I drink something, I like to be called beverage. <laughs> like whenever I go to dinner, I ask for food items, you know? <laughs> Danny, you're here too. Are you a food item pumpkin fan? No, I had a lot of organic food this weekend. I, I always love Boom. eating those foods that are like cheese product. And I'm like, does that mean it's right. cheese? Mm, no. no, if it says product, it means no. it's not the thing. Like and by the way, by organic foods, Danny drank a lot of French wine over the weekend, which is technically organic and technically a food. It was actually so not go. only organic, it was biodynamic. Oh, God. Uh, apparently, the vineyard I was on uh, has its own lambs or sheep that poop all over the vineyard to fertilize in a cycle of life thing. It was very, it sounded interesting until you realized and you thought about it and you're like, I hope you wash those grapes before you put them in the fermenter. Yeah. Well, speaking of crap leading to a circle of life, let's talk about how fraud shows up in the cycle of investment, guys. That is our theme today. And uh, the reason we're talking about fraud is because we have a question. We have seen rising examples of fraud in the last couple of weeks, couple of months. We want to say it's been a conversation we've had on the equity Slack channels and so forth. And so we wanted to kind of dig into it today. And the question is, does the rising amounts of fraud that we've seen in and around the startup community, if you will, indicate that we are towards the later end of a bubble. There's been a traditional view that rising fraud is generally something that you see when a market or an economy is overly excited or too hot. And we have a couple of ideas about this, but we thought it'd be best to go ahead and start by exploring the question through the lens of a couple of news events. The first one of which involves the blockchain space, NFTs, and a, a company that I actually know reasonably well. So Natasha, what happened with OpenSea? Yeah, so OpenSea is a platform that sells NFTs. And even for people who don't know NFTs, they probably have paid attention to them when they sold for millions within minutes. A lot of attention has gone towards this digital asset just because of how much money you can make selling them. Obviously, OpenSea popped off over the past year as one of the homes where these items were being sold. And where we recently learned that a top executive at the platform was accused of front running the sales on the platform, basically purchasing pieces he knew was going to be on the homepage before they got there and then pocketing the money that he made as a result. Danny, on a scale of one to 10 on the fraudometer, where do you rank that? <laughs> well, I think it's good to remember, you know, there, there are legal definitions of fraud that are tried either with executive actions through regulatory agencies like the SEC or in the court system. And then there's sort of like the, the gray line of fraud that we are maybe talking about a little bit more here. This is like one of these classic cases where I think this actually happens more than people realize to a lot of these companies. You know, the featured startup on certain, you know, sites, the featured tokens, the featured news story. If there's a way to trade the asset that's being featured, the person's doing the featuring has a lot of impact, right? Like, Power. you know, I'm not saying anything about, let's say, Apple, but there's an app store. Certain apps get focused on. their startups. They get backed. You could imagine, you know, that you would need actually quite a bit of regulatory controls to ensure that the app store reviewers didn't have shares in certain companies that they're highlighting on the front page of a major site. It sounds to me, having read the story, that OpenSea, there was a guy running the page. There's no controls. There's no regulations. There's no policies. In fact, it's very loosey-goosey in the, in the crypto world. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems like he uh, connected the dots, so to speak, and realized like, <laughs> oh, I own these things. I can focus on putting the things in the front page of a popular site. Things become more valuable. I make more money. Unfortunately... There's some form of market manipulation, fraud, and just general ugh, 
that I think comes out of that, perhaps unsurprisingly, departed the company, what, two days later? Yeah. It's a bad look for OpenSea because it was well on its way to being the platform where NFTs and a lot of crypto newcomers slash enthusiasts were going to do their thing. So, you know, months earlier, OpenSea had hit a $1.5 billion valuation. In July, just a few months ago, it had $160 million in sales. So I think having a hit like this maybe isn't as... It's, it's not putting it in the graveyard just yet, but I do think a lot of people have had questions about crypto, have had questions about how fraud looks in crypto, and this just adds another data point to it. Yeah, it's not a great look for the NFT market, but I will say, so there was a tweet that I read about this particular issue. Someone was like, you know, in the art world, buying some art that was from an artist that you knew was going to get a big showing would be kind of like Tuesday. But then again, we, we don't want to say that crypto should only reach the, the level of ethics of the modern art world because that would be a kind of a low bar. But if you run a marketplace, there's a presumption of not transparency per se, but just fairness. And this goes against that. And if you want to attract users, which OpenSea must do, it, it's a pretty bad look. Danny? Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's not something that even is unique to the NFT and crypto world. I mean, in the Federal Reserve just yesterday, two Federal Reserve governors effectively announced their retirements in the aftermath of an investigation that showed that they had traded investment shares in companies while also knowing kind of the Fed's buyback program, which was going to drive up a lot of the share prices for individual stocks. Um, one said that they were leaving for healthcare reasons, the other for, for the distraction of the trades from their work. Mm. But I think it's one of these things that's intrinsic to a lot of financial markets, of course, is again, there's very powerful people. You need a lot of controls. We actually only learned about the Federal Reserve because of transparency rules. And we're still in the Wild West in the crypto world. You know, in this case, it was a secret wallet. We didn't have any clue it was going on until someone connected the dots. Yeah. And as Natasha said, there's so much money flowing through this space. Of course, there's going to be bad actors and so forth. Just a bad look for OpenSea, going to show that fraud is possible, even amongst companies we've heard of and we think are cool. Now, to a company you haven't heard of and you don't think is cool, Ozzy, uh, which is spelled O Z Y. Uh, guys, I, I'm not going to lie. I, before this story popped off, and we'll get into what happened in a second, but like I'd heard of Ozzy peripherally. I don't recall ever touching a piece of their writing, newsletters, videos. Have you guys ever consumed Aussie content? I haven't. No. I, but I, I will say I, I felt personally attacked, even though I hadn't read any of the material, because we have been hyping up this next generation of media companies so much on this show. Did we, did we ever like say nice things about Aussie before? We have done so many shows. I've, yeah, okay. I don't think we knew it existed. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, because apparently they raised a bunch of money and were claiming to have simply absolutely astronomical reach. They were talking about having like 50 million monthly unique users back in 2019. They had raised $83 million and they were this media company kind of targeted at the broader millennial space that worked across newsletters and videos and so forth. And then there is the twist to the story. So the former EIC of BuzzFeed writes a column for New York Times all about media, Ben Smith, and he is a person who can get a scoop. And it turns out that Ozzy was talking to Goldman about a possible investment. And one of the co-founders of Ozzy literally impersonated a YouTube executive using a voice transcoder type thing to kind of cover up what he actually sounded like to praise Ozzy to these bankers. And they, they found out and uh, didn't invest. Uh, but Danny, it turns out that if you impersonate someone else as a way to possibly drive an investment, you're getting away from the fuzzy line of fraud and more towards the black and white examples of fraud, I think. Yeah, yeah there, 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 this was sort of a, a nuts story. I mean, obviously falls into to wire fraud would probably be the most mm. likely category, possibly securities fraud. But what was nuts is this was an investment meeting. So they were raising tens of millions of dollars from the Goldman Wealth Management Group 
And, you know, it was originally on video. So he turned his video off and switched to a phone call to sort of hide the voice (laughs) modulating feature. And the part that actually galls me, and the reason we're talking about it, even though it hasn't reached the sort of SEC settlement stage of fraud, is the board investigator was like, that's cool. I mean, who, what kind of board hears a story? Like, I heard this story, and like, this isn't like the intern first week, freshman year, you know, going into sophomore year, and they're like, I didn't know ethics, and you, you know, have a learning moment at the company. This is a co-founder COO raising tens of millions of dollars, yeah. and this is an established company. This is something that you should, like, if this is what they're doing in this meeting, you've got to ask what's happening in all the other meetings. What else is being impersonated? Like, if you would have, a, I don't even know where to get a voice modulator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have no idea. I find, like, the most poetic part of this entire incident, which is a little off topic, is that the co-founder is impersonating someone whose last name is Piper, and now they have to pay the Piper. <laughs> like, it's a beautiful <laughs> circle and closed loop. I was like, yep, that'll do it. Right. So dad of the month goes to Natasha. Happy Father's Day. Well, and, and look, you know, one of the bigger parts of the Ben Smith story. So there's this beautiful scoop like this, this vignette. But then he uses that yeah. to open up a wider conversation of Aussie says they have 50 million MAUs, um, that they're on all these different platforms, that they're one of the most popular channels on YouTube. They're all uh, first in a bunch of these categories. And yet no one's heard of them. Yeah. They have 50 million. One in six people read it supposedly regularly. We just don't know any of those one in six people, which is pretty hard to believe in a, in a very interconnected network that is the internet. Yeah, and like, I, I don't mean to, to overstress this, but I'm, I'm online a lot. I read a lot of stuff. I read a lot of bad stuff. I watch a lot of crappy YouTube. Like, I don't know. I watch like Verge videos, but they're actually great. But like, I, I just to keep, okay, that was a terrible con- connection there. So imagine there was a period there, not a semicolon, but I, I, I consume broadly because I want to be informed about the media landscape. How have I not seen Ozzy? And so some of my favorite disses that I've seen about the company on, on Twitter and also in, uh, I think it was the original post on the Times, is people that are like, they claim to have X number of subscribers. Their recent video has like 12 likes. And I'm like, that's a very niche diss, but it's a very good one because it just shows that either they're, they're fake numbers because there's no engagement, right? It's like if someone has a million Instagram followers and they get like four likes, you're like, oh, you, you, you bought those, right? I mean, Natasha, this is a thing we've seen from individuals, but less frequently from heavily venture-backed startups. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, fraud or at least something like fuzzing the numbers or overhyping yourself is so obvious in retrospect. But in this case, it was Goldman Sachs that was like, eh, that voice sounds weird. So that's why they got in trouble. Do you think it would have still played out because of some of those things you were saying earlier, Alex, that things weren't lining up? Like, do you think it was inevitable or was it because they tried to trick this bank that knows a few things? (laughs) I mean, what I want to bring up there is the concept of due diligence, which we will get to in just a minute. But let's talk about our last example from the last couple of weeks, which was App Annie. This is a company that I have heard of, I have used. And in fact, I interviewed the CEO back in the day for what was then called TechCrunch TV. App Annie, if you don't know, is a platform that aggregates data about mobile applications for iOS, for Android, you know, like how popular is Natasha's super cool app in Thailand on iOS tablet devices. Like they've got this great data set. And so as a person who writes about the digital economy, I've used their data for years because it's great. It's a great way to get a quick look at how individual applications and companies are performing. So if you want to track, you know, how is Danny's investment service doing versus, you know, I don't know, Robinhood, you can do that. It's cool. But then, Danny, they got into a little bit of trouble. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. They have settled with the SEC. Can you tell us what they did that was so, I don't know, let's say over the line? It is a little complicated, and I'm going to try to be precise. So, you know, AppAnti collects a bunch of confidential information from individual app manufacturers. So if you are an app developer, you can install AppAnti's analytics. You get those dashboards to understand how your users work. What they did was they sort of 
started aggregating this information to make their more public metrics more viable. And that was actually in violation of the terms of those agreements. If you had signed an agreement saying, I, I'm going to install App Annie on my app, you're not going to use it for any other reason. It's my own metrics. The company was basically lying to investors and, and including that information elsewhere. And so to, to be absolutely precise from the language we have here, App Annie used non-aggregated and non-anonymized data to alter its model generating estimates to make them more valuable to sell to trading firms. And that's the key last piece. And so they actually had to settle uh, $10 million with the SEC for securities fraud because they essentially argued that they were doing something much better than they really were. On the point about trading, it's pretty important. So one thing that the SEC wrote was that they were kind of telling trading firms that they could use this data to make decisions about trades before earnings announcements came out. So they were, they were saying that, look, if you look at this, you can make pretty good bets when they were using the data in a, in a manner they had promised not to. And that's why I think this was a $10 million settlement versus something a little bit smaller Although I will say 10 million feels kind of small for this scale of, uh, of badness. Like it feels almost a bit like a, like a traffic ticket. Like I think it should have added a zero to that and really caused some pain. I will say, I mean, from a philosophical perspective, you talk to securities attorneys, you know, the SEC's actions are not designed to kill companies. What they do is they want compliance. So what the app Annie will have agreed to as part of this is they will have better compliance systems in place. They'll have oversight. And essentially, they have like a control over their head. Like basically, if you ever violate this again, you have now proven mm -hmm. that you, you know, supervision is not enough. And then the real fine comes. And, and I, I think generally SEC, you know, is a pretty cooperative regulatory agency. It wants strong yeah. markets. It doesn't want to go to court frequently. It wants you to agree to, you know, the non-prosecution agreement or whatever the case may be to get you over the line. So in this case, you pay a little fee. That makes it so it actually registers, you agree to actually fix the problem, and then it goes away and the markets are better. The SEC wins. There's no long five-year court battle. It's sort of a win-win-win for the markets because the markets are always changing. App Annie is may not even be relevant by the time the court case you know, is concluded. In a fair and equitable society, I would be fine with that. But we live in America where there's pretrial detention, there's cash bails, and there's prisons and jails like Rikers Island where people go and die before they even get charged. So if App Annie's going to get away with a f***ing wrist tap and a $5 fee, I demand we let all the kids out of jail, right? So it's, it's ridiculous to me that this system is set up in this country in this manner. It makes me fucking livid. If we're going to put the kids in jail, App Annie should be fucked for being this bad for a four-year period, allowing other people to commit securities fraud. It's ridiculous. Blah. It makes me so mad. I, I feel like the, the solace can potentially be found in that they just lost their most valuable asset, which is trust. With their customers on a consistent basis like literally what else did they have agreed alex it's not like an outside source teaching them a lesson which would have been maybe more satisfying in some ways but i i do see app annie now having to put a lot of effort in even trying i don't know if it can do it if it can try and build up that trust before we move on uh natasha we were talking about data quality before we started recording and you were curious about if we can trust the data that was uh included is that correct yeah like i think the moment I saw the headlines about App Annie getting charged with fraud in any way, I was thinking immediately, selfishly, about TechCrunch. And we use their data, like you said, all the time. So now after kind of chatting it through, it seems like the fraud itself was actually not that they made wrong numbers. The numbers were just too right. Yeah. <laughs> For bad so it, 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 they, they, were, they were too accurate, if you will, because they shouldn't have been 
that accurate. Let's move on. I don't want to get shouty again, but we love when you're shouty. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Like my mom, I listen to the podcast and be like, Alex, I heard you using profanity on the show. So <laughs> trying to be an adult. There has been other examples of fraud in recent times. Danny, your favorite uh, Luckin ended up with one of the more epic cases of fraud in history. But that was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. It was a couple of years ago in Luckin Coffee, the Chinese brand that at one point was building stores faster than Starbucks and had overtaken Starbucks in terms of number of stores in like 18 months, you know, went all the way down to the ground. It sounds like the assets were resold and it's actually coming back to life, according to some friends who I, I just heard from. And then we also obviously have the, the Elizabeth Holmes trial going on live in San Francisco District Court for Theranos. And um, I believe we're still in arguments. I don't think we've hit the jury's part of that trial, or at least I haven't seen it picking up. And then we had Nikola, the, the EV company where uh, Trevor Milton got hit pretty hard by the SEC, again, on, on fraud charges. So I think one of the things, I think there's a couple of observations I would make. One is free money, heavy competition, the need for metrics against all odds just comes up again and again in a lot of conversations. And so on one hand, you have this immense need for folks to actually prove that they're doing great stuff. Second, because it's so competitive for investors to get into these companies, you're seeing less and less diligence. One of those parts of the, the Theranos trial is, is GV's Bill Maris sent one of the folks who worked at GV at the time, Google Ventures, to a Walgreens to actually try the machine and found out that they were still pulling yeah. you know, a quart of blood like a vampire, even though you're supposed to only use one drop. And that's why they chose not to. Was attack. it a quart of blood? Because that's a lot there, dude. Yeah, I don't know. You know, a lot. Use a, large, a quintal of, of blood. More than a finger stick prick. More I than a finger prick, saying. yes. But then there are other cases like Nicola where I, I'm just like, you're sitting here wondering, what are people on? Because not that I would want to use that, but like, it looks like they're having a blast over there spending billions of dollars on a company that's like literally making up numbers wholesale. I think what you're saying, too, is like it's a spectrum of fraud. On the one end, it's like the fake it till you make it flashy, talk your own book and try and convince people on your vision. And then there's like kind of the cut and dry. This is wrong. And it's kind of wild that they got so far. And I feel like the middle part, which is probably most cases, is the most difficult to figure out and draw a line on. The challenge for a lot of stars is they evolve, right? So in the early years, you're in the MVP phase we were just holding panels that disrupt, you know, and one of the VCs we had on stage was just like, look, we just discount everything you read for the first two years. All the numbers are too small. Nothing is really valuable. Like, it doesn't matter. And it's true. Like, wh you know, why bother trying to make an investment decision with such little data anyway? The right. problem is, like, right. in the example of App Annie, it didn't have a CFO. Or I'm sorry, uh, it was an App Annie. It was actually one of the frauds we cut. The SaaS company from, like, what, a month ago? There's been so much fraud yeah. and we had this episode planned like two weeks ago <laughs> that like literally yeah, the fraud is expiring curtail. because there's so many fraud. But, but the SaaS company, uh, do, Alex, do you remember the name of it? Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but what happened was the, the CEO was routing all the contracts through him. And so he was just kind of cooking the books because no one was going over there's the no actual CFO. numbers. Ooh. And this was almost no 100, well, it was 100 million, or a claimed 100 million yeah, yeah, uh, AR. Yeah. So Lord knows what the actual, you know, the forensic accounts will figure that out. But nonetheless, the point is, this should have been a professional company with a professional CFO following, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, all the accounting standards. And instead, the CEO is literally like in QuickBooks, like, ah, 500,000, <laughs> ah, 200,000, boom, there's our ARR number. You know, it just, it really begs the question, like, why is that professionalization not kicking in? And I, I just think that the tone, the tone is coming from a lot of other places. For instance, Palantir, when it went IPO and I covered it last year, had no CFO until like literally weeks to months before it went public. It was adding board members because it didn't have an independent board. It didn't actually follow accounting standards. And they actually had an amendment in the S1 that was like, 
you know, post the IPO, we intend to follow, you know, within the grace period <laughs> that is offered to get up to speed. I, I just think that's insane. It, it's absolutely insane. But, but going back to what you said, Danny, there is so much money flowing around the private markets in general. There is so much competition to get into the hottest deals or even medium attractive deals that we're seeing due diligence go down. And if you want to know what this looks like in kind of a more concrete example, think about the housing market today in the US, for example, people are waiving inspections because they want to buy a house and it's very competitive. Waiving inspections in real estate is akin to waiving due diligence in startup investing. You're not getting a look at the actual foundation to see if it's crumbling or if it's made of styrofoam as opposed to concrete. And, you know, while things remain this heated and it appears they're going to stay this way for some time now, maybe quarters of more time, we're going to see rising amounts of fraud. And that brings us to our question, which is, does rising amounts of fraud or rising quantities of fraud, does that indicate that we are in a bubble or perhaps towards the end of one? And that's what I wanted to bring up to you guys, because to me, this amount of shenanigans does seem to be indicative of a very overheated market which we would think would eventually come back to reality. Natasha, you first. My stance right now is I think we're still in a bubble versus nearing the end of something. A lot of venture capital firms have raised a lot of money over the past year. We saw Greylock with their $500 million seed fund and Dreesen with their $400 million <laughs> seed fund. And I think just using those two data points, we know that they're going to have to put a lot of more money into the ecosystem to spend it so that their LPs are happy. I'm not saying they will be the main perpetrators of startups that are doing the fraud, but I, I do think <laughs> that that kind of money in the market means that it has to go somewhere. <laughs> I think one of the things you have to remember, even if you're super excited about startups and you want everything to get funded and you want everyone to experiment and everyone's dreams to come true, the reason this these enforcement actions matter is because ultimately you want a transparent, open, free marketplace. You know, fundamentally, the securities laws from the 1930s have a very simple theory, which is that every investor is allowed to take their own risk based on their own appetite. They can do whatever they want, but they need to know what they're buying. That's it. You have to transparently describe what's going on with the company. And what we're finding is that more and more CEOs aren't being transparent with what they're doing with their companies. So we don't actually know what you're investing in anymore. You know, as an example, one VC, and I may have even mentioned this on Equity, noted to me that they just did a $50 million like Series B or C round in which they had never met the CEO, did not look at the company's books, did no due diligence, and wrote the check in 48 hours. And I asked, like, how do you know what the company, like, that any of it is real? And they're like, well, hopefully the other investors did the work before us. <laughs> oh, my like, God. And the problem is, this is where it, it kind of metastasizes. Like, those earlier investors were in the early stage rounds where they don't check the numbers. So no one has actually right. probably checked the numbers in the company, and it's already raised $50 million plus dollars. So I, I think it just, it, you know, it's like checking your footnotes. I mean, it, it's painful to always do the due diligence or double check things. And then you find out the company's not even, you know, incorporated in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely terrifying. And it just goes to show how much things have changed. Because if you go back to like when I was learning about public markets and investing and so forth, there were like rules of thumb about what you needed to go public, which was at least 100 million trailing revenue and three quarters of successively growing profit. Obviously, no longer the case. All the rules have changed. But at least in the venture world, it seemed like, you know, the, the hard rules of like diligence and ownership targets were going to stay in place. And both of those have been diluted. To the point in which I don't even know what VCs do aside from wake up, pick three <laughs> random emails and write three checks. Like, I, I, I mean, there's, there's a bad no explanation of what's going on. Obviously, founders should not commit fraud. Like, I'll say that. That said, I think VCs are playing. <laughs> Thank you, Natasha. I think VCs are playing a role here that, that should be talked about more. Like the fact that they're not doing due diligence and not holding people accountable or at least 
holding their own checks and money accountable can create this like snowball effect. When App Annie committed fraud, a competitor Apptopia basically wrote that they actively did not take shortcuts to hit scale and they ignored other, I don't know, unrealistic board VC or market tensions. And I feel like there is something to be said about just how VCs consistently not checking their footnotes, as you said, Danny, could just like kind of recycle through everyone. Like everyone's lying to each other. I don't know. But But it's our money to some degree, right? Some of this comes from like the Harvard endowment, but some of it comes from pension funds that our parents will eventually want to leverage. And so this isn't just funny money. Like, it's fine to say if VCs go bankrupt, I don't care. And I don't, because I don't care. But it's not just their own chips they're playing with. And so there is a moral element to this that extends past just being giggly about some VCs putting $15 million into a company that doesn't have uh, revenue, you know? The last thing I'll say about fraud that is complicated and it's probably too complicated to make to a decision on this show is that mental health is linked to it. And so is a lot of subject matter, like what exactly the product this founder is selling and betting it's their vision on. And so I feel like those are two factors maybe to future explore in some way. But I know we often see in these court cases, people talking about mental health as one of the reasons. And I don't know if I can say whether that's it or not it, but it's part of it. Yeah. So just to summarize, everybody, do your due diligence. And uh, if you're going to run an NFT marketplace, don't front run your own auctions because you'll burn through all your user trust. And in the meantime, don't get in trouble with the SEC. And uh, Gap is a good idea. All right. We'll be back on Friday. Bye, everybody.